Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For people suffering from severe depression, it can seem that nothing will ever, ever, ever get better. Treatments have improved over the last 30 years, but some people do not respond to the classes of drugs that have become the basic treatment option. And that's where new acute treatments have begun to show major results. One important new option is actually stimulating parts of the brain with pulses of magnetic energy. For reasons that remain a bit mysterious... This can make some people suffering from depression feel radically better for months. We'll dig into the science and hope represented by new psychiatric developments like this. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. For many years, the prevailing theory for why people became depressed has centered on imbalances in some of the chemicals floating around in our brains. Thus, the frontline treatment became Prozac and similar drugs like Zoloft, which aimed to change the mix of brain chemicals to a healthier configuration. But many people do not respond to those drugs, and sometimes to any drugs at all. As one researcher told the medical publication Stat, the field got stuck in a cul-de-sac of just looking at the same drugs. But slowly... Researchers and psychiatrists have begun to move away from this simple model of brain chemistry as destiny, exploring new and often fast-acting treatments for what ails minds. Maybe you've heard about researchers exploring psychedelic drugs or MDMA or ketamine to treat mental illness. But there's also an increasing interest in transcranial magnetic stimulation in which pulses of energy are sent to a very specific spot within the brain. In a new study, Stanford researcher Nolan Williams showed that by adjusting some of the variables in the stimulation, they can achieve even more relief for depressed patients. Dr. Williams, director of Stanford Brain Stimulation Lab and assistant professor at the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, joins us this morning. Welcome, Dr. Williams. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Good, good. We're also joined by Shan Siddiqui, instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, neuropsychiatrist in the Center for Brain Therapeutics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Siddiqui. It's great to be here. Thank you. Dr. Williams, let's start with you. Before we get into your advances, just kind of give us the basics. What is transcranial magnetic stimulation and how has it traditionally worked? Yeah, great question. So to kind of zoom back, um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, earlier about drugs and just to give folks kind of a, a sense of orientation. And so there have been kind of three three eras in psychiatry so far. You know, a lot of us view we're um, entering into this third area era of uh, brain circuitry, but this, um, you know, psychiatry 1.0, which was 
Freud and this kind of invention mm -hmm. of psychotherapy, psychiatry 2.0 being, um, you know, drugs and using, using psychiatric drugs to modify brain chemistry. And then this psychiatry 3.0 is this idea of modulating brain circuits. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that arose from a lot of work done in the 80s and 90s demonstrating that the brain is organized in circuits much the same way that your computer has circuits, right? And but just infinitely more complex. <laughs> but infinitely more complex, absolutely. Um, and so the idea, if you have a circuit, is that you can modify the circuit through um, through electricity, um, either direct electricity or um, or induced current. And and that's the that's the way that TMS works. So TMS stands that's transcranial for, magnetic simulation. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And so the idea transcranial meaning through through the cranium. Um, so this is a magnet outside of the head, um, a very powerful magnet, the same field strength as an MRI scanner. Hmm. And when you pulse a magnet, um, Faraday's law says that when you pulse a magnet, you generate current in electrically conducting substances. And what's very useful about that is you can induce current only in essentially brain tissue and the fluid that's right around the brain tissue. But because skin and the skull and, and those sorts of, um, you know, materials aren't, aren't particularly, particularly conductive, oh. the, the magnetic pulse just goes straight through them without really interacting with, with that, those substances at all. And it just really induces a current in the brain. And so if I put a TMS coil over the area that controls your thumb, I can have your thumb, I can induce the current in that brain region and then your thumb would then move as mm. the result of a firing of the neurons in your thumb. And so the idea- um, Well, Dr. Williams, let me, let me stop you there just to, uh, to use the thumb example for a second. Does that mean yeah. that you, I mean, our brain volumes are quite large and there's lots and lots of <laughs> neurons uh, yeah, in there, which means that, you must be able, if you can just move my thumb and not the rest of my fingers or my whole arm, you must be able to focus in these pulses into like very small regions of the brain, right? Yeah. So about a, a centimeter, um, you know, diameter or so is, is what, uh, what we're, we're talking about with the, with the more focal coils. Um, and so the idea is that you can, you know, in a, in a relatively focused spot in the brain you can cause depolarization there but as you're kind of alluding to you don't get a, a movement in the arm you don't get a movement in the shoulder or the foot or the or the head or any other areas that are nearby but not directly under the coil and so it allows you to isolate certain brain regions um, which is kind of part of the part of the work that that i'll be talking about i think part of the work that dr siddiqui will be talking about mm -hmm. So yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about the improvements on the sort of um, on what's been approved by the FDA for transcranial uh, magnetic simulation that your lab has really been working on? Like, what were the problems with the sort of existing um, technology or, or possible improvements that could be made on it? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, the original TMS approach was developed in the uh, at the NIH in the mid '90s. TMS as a technology, not really a therapeutic technology, but just as a technology, as a, a probe was developed in the mid eighties. Hmm. And in the mid nineties, when they started doing this, they were exceeding, rightfully so exceedingly careful in, uh, in, you know, developing the first generation of this. And so it was really developed as a way of treating non-emergency, you know, psychiatric 
kind of de depression without really um, trying to treat people that were in a psychiatric emergency. And so the stimulation was applied once a day um, over six weeks. The, the target, the area of the brain that, that um, was stimulated was, uh, you know, the named brain region, the left or lateral prefrontal cortex, which is quite large. I mean, it, it's like five centimeters in span in some places. And so it's much larger than the, the kind of TMS pulse. Um, and so the, the stimulation was kind of more vaguely in that region mm -hmm. uh, based off of, of ruler measurements on the head. And, um, you know, remarkably it worked, you know, so that, that first set of studies uh, resulted in FDA approval. But, you know, when, when we started looking at this, we, we weren't trying to necessarily improve it. We were trying to find a way to use it in psychiatric emergencies. And so, um, as, as you, as you likely know, and, and, and um, you know, some of the audience would know that um, if you go into a psychiatric hospital, it's very different than going in to the, the medical hospital with chest pain, right? If you go into a psychiatric hospital, there aren't really treatments designed specifically for inpatient um, care. Um, electroconvulsive therapy, which has been around for a hundred years is available in about 10% of US hmm. psychiatric hospitals, but it, it hasn't really scaled beyond that. So it's very limited in who can get a hold of that. And there are, there are you know, a number of, of side effects related to, to that, that, that folks are quite, concerned about. Um, and so, you know, we were trying to develop a way, a, a low side effect profile, you know, very quick um, way of using TMS to treat suicidal depression. So people that are, that are in a, in a psychiatric emergency and they're going into the emergency room and into the hospital because they want to kill themselves and they're quite severely depressed. And, um, you know, and when we started treating folks, we, we started to realize that that we had um, something that was working in, in, in the vast majority of people that we were treating, which was, um, which was kind of unexpected um, at the time when we first yeah. developed this. And, and the way that, that um, we changed it is that we modified uh, conventional TMS in three ways, um, in space, in time, and in dose. So in space, we took this ruler measurement um, sort of methodology and inspired by by the work of Mike Fox and Sean Siddiqui, we, um, we developed um, a way of personalizing um, the target based off of that person's brain connectivity, right? And so every single person gets a brain MRI and that brain MRI is analyzed for the best spot to place the coil. So, you know, modified in space, right? It's a, a different place in everybody's... Um, on everybody's skull in the same spot in everybody's brain, which is the exact opposite of conventional TMS where it was the same spot on everybody's skull, but a different spot in everybody's brain. Hmm. Um, and so the second, the second innovation is in time. And so the idea um, is that we, there, there's something called space learning theory um, that's been around for, for a little while, but hadn't really been applied um, in, in a clinical way to TMS, which says that, if you, if you um, kind of stimulate and then you wait a certain period of time and you stimulate again, there's an optimal interaction between the first stimulation and the second stimulation. And if you do that again, there's an optimal interaction between the second and the third and mm -hmm. so on. And everybody knows this principle if you've studied for a test with note cards, right? You don't write one note card down and look at it 
and then look at it again over and over again and then never look at it again. What you do is you write 60 note cards out and you look at the first one for about a minute and then you look at the other 59 and about an hour later you get back to that first note card. So it looks like about an hour is the time needed for the brain to kind of adapt to that information and optimally learn it. And so we utilized a stimulation approach that that really um, that really kind of optimizes learning. And in this case, it's exogenous learning, right? It's it's a signal sent by the magnet inducing this brain region that's involved in control and perceived control to stay on. It's a very simple signal. It's a very simple thing that we're telling the brain to learn, which is to, yeah. to kind of turn on and stay on. But if you do that in the space learning theory sort of way, then you're able to to kind of turn it on and in, in many cases, keep it on for quite a long time. And then the third, the third principle that we, um, that we learned about and kind of applied here was this principle of, of dose escalation. And it's something that's, you know, you talked about psychiatric drugs earlier. It's something that, um, that we've been doing with, with all sorts of, of pharmaceutical drugs for some time, which is to keep giving a dose until you hit an unacceptable side effect or you plateau mm -hmm. the efficacy. And so we figured out a way to compress an entire six week course of FDA approved conventional RTMS into a single day. Wow. And so we can give the whole six week course in a day, in a day. and then we get five times that much. So we're able to give the equivalent of seven and a half months of TMS in five days. And what you see is... I mean, we might have to leave it there, Dr. Williams, until we come back from the break. We're talking yeah. about promising new treatments for depression and mental illness, especially transcranial magnetic stimulation with Nolan Williams, director of the Stanford Brain Stimulation Lab, Sean Siddiqui, instructor in psychiatry and at Harvard Medical School. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about promising new treatments for depression and mental illness with Nolan Williams, director of the Stanford Brain Stimulation Lab, also an assistant professor in Stanford's uh, Department of Psychiatry, as well as Sean Siddiqui, instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a neuropsychiatrist at the Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And we do want to hear from you. Have you had experience with this kind of treatment? What questions do you have? about this kind of transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS, uh, as the term of art goes. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. 
can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Dr. Siddiqui, I want to turn to you here. You know, I've been writing about some of these brain stimulation technologies for almost 10 years now, and I still can't believe it works. <laughs> like, I honestly am like, <laughs> what is going on here? How, so why, what's the going theory for why shooting different kinds of energy, in this case magnetic pulses into the brain, actually does something as subjective as improve someone's depression symptoms? Yeah, so the way I usually explain this to patients is that uh, uh, everything in the brain is sent by electrical signals. Uh, and we can use these magnetic pulses to manipulate electrical signals the way Dr. Williams was talking about earlier. And so in principle, you should be able to manipulate anything. And in fact, depression is just the first thing that we've got FDA approval for. Uh, but if, if we can localize anything in the brain, we should be able to target it and, and modify it. Now, it's interesting. It's, you know, a lot of people don't even believe that you can make TMS work. But as Dr. Williams was mentioning earlier, if you come into the clinic, we can take control and twitch your thumb. Uh, and when, as soon as you do that, everybody immediately realizes, okay, this is actually doing something. Uh, it, but it's, uh, the, there are people who are still skeptical about whether it treats depression. But I think if you just talk to some of the people who have uh, gone through the treatment and improved as much as they did, uh, that I think alleviate some of that skepticism too. Yeah. And actually, you know, let's bring in um, two folks who are actively involved um, in doing this treatment, actually just in the world. Uh, Deidre Lehman, she was treated for depression at Stanford using uh, the technique that Dr. Williams described. Welcome to the show, Deidre. Oh, happy to be here. And we're also joined by Kennedy Cosgrove, a psychiatrist at Kaiser Permanente at the Oakland Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Cosgrove. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Deirdre, let's start with you. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit of your story and how you were feeling before you went through this treatment. Well, I'm technically bipolar and was not correctly diagnosed uh, until 17 years ago. And I had the great fortune to have a brilliant psychiatrist who, with medication and therapy, was, uh, was able to keep me stable for over 17 years. Um, and then in June of 2000, I just slid off a cliff out of nowhere into a de severe depressive uh, state and then within a period of five days, moved into a suicidal state with suicidal ideation, uh, ruminating in my head. And we could talk about what it feels like to be depressed, that severely depressed. Uh, essentially, you're just beating yourself up for every mistake you've made in your life. And uh this feeling of hopelessness and despair and the only way that you see out is through killing yourself through suicide so yeah. uh just wanted to say also if you're feeling this way the national suicide prevention lifeline is 1-800-273-8255 so that's 1-800-273-8255 uh yes so okay, sorry continue to, yeah um, so we had the good fortune of having, uh, as I said, my psychiatrist who is constantly keeping up, uh, with the latest, um, techniques and therapies for treating depressed patients. And we had the good fortune of 
her knowing about Nolan's initial trial and the good fortune of Nolan accepting me um, into this trial. So I was almost in my own world, not, not catatonic, but not responding to uh, any outside uh, sources or remedies. And my psychiatrist wanted to keep me out of the psychiatric hospital for the reasons that uh, Dr. Nolan uh, talked about. And one thing that is uh, frightening about the psychiatric issue is, uh, or ward, is that, and Dr. Nolan uh, can talk about this, uh, is that within two to three months after being in the hospital, that's the highest rate of suicide. Mm -hmm. So uh, clearly it, it is not a solution. So I was, as I said, had the good fortune to go through this treatment. Um, and it was a 10 hour day where we had the magnetic pulses on for approximately 10, not approximately, it's exactly uh, 10 minutes mm -hmm. with a 40 minute break for your brain to rest. Mm -hmm. And I had not eaten in a week. Uh, I had not been able to hear anything about my, my family mm -hmm. telling me loving that they love me, please don't do it. Uh, and uh, my nuclear uh, family, which consists of my husband and my two older daughters, um, were involved with making decisions with my psychiatrist. So I started the trial without even being aware of sitting in the chair and having these magnetic pulses going how, through my brain until the oh excuse me what did you want to ask oh and and how when did you find out or when did it feel to you like something had changed by the third hour all of a sudden I started waking up and uh was a I was actually feeling better and by the uh, lunchtime which was approximately what Nolan five to six treatments I was eating I was alert, I was speaking, I was, uh, I had more clarity. Um, and then by the end of the day, which people find this very hard to believe, I was completely, uh, for lack of a better term, cured, um, but completely back to myself and it was so peaceful and quiet in my brain that I turned to my husband and I said, is this how your brain works? Mm. Yeah, it was really powerful and transformative. And I would say the most difficult part for me was wrapping my head around the fact that within a day, I was back to my normal self. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, into question how the brain works, right? Yeah. Oh, it was it was incredible. That was June of 2018, and the great thing about this kind of treatment is it's a powerful tool in your tool belt. It's not a cure, but you're able to go back, and if you find yourself either in a, another suicidal issue, which I did in January of 20. 
I went back and I had the same experience within a day. I was back to my normal self. And the only side effect I felt, and I think this is common in the other patients that go through this type of accelerated TMS, which is known as the SAINT program, um, was severe fatigue. But what a minor side effect. Um, You know, you take naps, you sleep a little bit more at night, but you wake up and you are your best self. Deirdre Lehman, she was treated for depression at Stanford using Dr. Nolan Williams' uh, protocol, the Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy. Thank you so much for joining us to share your story. Oh, I'm more than happy to be here to share it. It's It's a very important and powerful thing that I think brings tremendous hope to all of the people that suffer, you know, the millions that suffer from depression. Great. Thank you so much. Dr. Cosgrove, psychiatrist at Kaiser Permanente Oakland Medical Center, you do this pretty much every day. Like this is a major part of your job, not to deploy this particular Stanford methodology, but to do transcranial magnetic stimulation. What's it like as a psychiatrist, to have these tools at your disposal and to be able to to help people who might be really suffering? It's wonderful. I've really pivoted in my career uh, as a psychiatrist and, and dedicated myself along with uh, my colleague here, Jane, who we started the uh, program at Kaiser. Took a, couple, a year or two to get it underway, but in 2018, uh, we started treating our patients here in-house. And it's been really, really gratifying to watch how effective it's been. The turnarounds like Deirdre spoke about uh, of, for people who have suffered for quite a long time in many cases, and to see them you know, pivot to a, a, an undepressed, better place has been really, really wonderful. And uh, clearly, I love it. I think it's a tremendous treatment. It's not Nothing's perfect, nothing's 100%, but wow, is it an improvement and a wonderful tool to have. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's complicated about this is it's, you know, uh, studies are sort of one realm and very important for sort of advancing the frontier of science. But then there's also these issues of accessibility, which a lot of uh, our listeners have been writing in. How can someone actually, you know, get access to these uh, new treatments? And I guess the question I want to pose to you, Dr. Cosgrove, is how do you come up with sort of the algorithm for deploying this treatment? Like, does somebody have to try a certain set of drugs? Does it become like the first treatment that you go to? Like, how do you decide when someone should uh, get this kind of treatment? Yeah, great question. So we follow the FDA, uh, you know, approvals and recommendations uh, for TMS, like with any treatment, basically, uh, you know, this has been developed to treat moderate to severe major depressive disorder. So that that's the kind of illness that we know it works for. You wouldn't want to use it, uh, you know, for a very mild, uh, you know, having a bad day or a bad week. This is, you know, pretty severe, uh, pretty impactful Uh, major depressive episodes and major depressive disorder. So that's the first thing. Um, For for reasons uh, of 
you know, kind of just logistics and, and common sense, you don't jump to this necessarily as the very first treatment uh, that you would ever try in someone. Um, it's it, a lot goes into it. It's logistically somewhat uh, complicated and time consuming. So usually people have tried multiple different avenues before they come to TMS medications, therapy, et cetera. Yeah. Um, the FDA uh, recommendation is at least three full medication trials uh, before you would consider uh, the standard TMS treatment. Let's uh, bring in Suzette from Berkeley, first caller. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, Some of this conversation is really difficult to hear because I have a brother who has, he was diagnosed probably 30 years ago with bipolar uh, disorder and was found on January 2nd in a tent um, dead. And he had been there for quite some time. And my question really is around access, not in terms of how can people get the treatment who have insurance, but for people who are on the street who are struggling with severe mental illness and who genuinely need support and help, and this would improve their lives. But what it sounds like to me is that the people who are able to get access to it have really good insurance. When you're talking about Stanford and Kaiser, these are people who can pay for the insurance. So my first comment is I'd really like to see all of these physicians advocating for um, the opportunities for other people who cannot pay for this treatment to find ways to do that, whether it's through legislation or you know whatever ways mm-hmm. that we can make it accessible, but also to understand that there are so many people who are struggling with mental illnesses and their families who are watching them spiral downward and who want to get them support, but we're often locked out of the process and trying to help them get what they need. So my question is, where are the access points for people who may not be, you know, the the paying mm-hmm. people who've got great insurance? Yeah. Thank you so much, Suzette. And I also just want to say I'm really sorry about your brother. That It's, it's hard. It's hard. Um, Dr. Cosgrove, I know you're passionate about increasing access to this kind of treatment. Like, what are – there's obviously no one answer, but what are the – kinds of answers that you might give to Suzanne? Um, yeah, I, again, I'm so sorry to hear that. And, and I completely agree, um, you know, getting, get for any treatment, getting access uh, is often the hardest part um, in the sense of when we started offering this treatment, when it was, you know, after it was FDA approved, no one had heard of it. And, um, you know, I talked to, to people about this every day uh, it's becoming more and more, uh, there's more awareness that it even exists. Um, that's increased by, you know, leaps and bounds. And, and Dr. Williams study at Stanford has actually generated quite a lot of awareness and publicity. Um, so like anything, it's a, it's a long process, um, to scale it up using these, you know, complex machines and, and getting enough access to treat people who need it. Since we started it at Kaiser four years ago, there are now nine medical centers here in Kaiser, Northern California that offer it, and we're just trying to increase the access to it every single day. Yeah. Dr. Williams, I did want to ask you, I mean, 
giving everyone an MRI who comes in. I mean, that sounds expensive. Um, are there ways where the cost of this kind of treatment could come down? Because it's it's one thing to you know for people to know about it. It's one thing for it to be available, uh, generally speaking. But it's another thing for people being able to pay and access this kind of treatment. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, so if you if you you know, so I'm both a neurologist and a psychiatrist, and if you kind of zoom back a little bit and you look at this, this is the most disabling condition worldwide, right? It's much more disabling than, than any other condition. Um, and uh, it's something that, um, that costs taxpayers a whole lot of money. Um, it's, there's a huge amount of, of financial loss for, for folks that go on, you know, get disabled by this and they can't work. And so if you, if you kind of juxtapose that with the cost of an MRI, the MRI cost is kind of minimal, and if you think about it, the most um, the, the most common condition in neurology is migraine. All those people get an MRI just to rule out, you know, if they have a brain tumor or something else that would be a low likelihood that's worrisome, right? And this is actually something that would guide uh, an effective therapy, right? And so in that sense, it makes a whole lot of sense that that folks would get an MRI if it can if it can improve efficacy. Um, a certain percentage above not having the MRI, right? That's really because that, that, that'll eliminate the financial aspects um, of that. Mm-hmm. But to get back to, to the comment earlier, which I think is a good one about access, you know, we've been working with Patrick Kennedy. We've been talking to, to the uh, various House of Representatives members here in California, really advocating for this. Um, my mentor, Mark George and others, uh, you know, he invented the original TMS approach, um, have gone and state by state worked on Medicare to get Medicare to pay for this. We're very much trying to get Medicare trying to, to do that. Yeah. So I think that um, well, we're talking about promising new treatments with Dr. Nolan Williams for depression, mental illness. We'll be back with more after short break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about promising new treatments for depression and mental illness, especially transcranial magnetic stimulation. We're joined by Nolan Williams, director of the Stanford Brain Stimulation Lab and an assistant professor at the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Sean Siddiqui, instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a neuropsychiatrist at the Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And Kennedy Cosgrove, a psychiatrist at Kaiser Permanente in uh, at the Oakland Medical Center, who actually does a lot of transcranial <laughs> magnetic stimulation. 
like to bring in Martha from Oakland, who I believe is actually driving right now to an appointment for transcranial stimulation. Welcome to the show, Martha. Hi, that's correct. I just parked. Um, I'm one of Dr. Cosgrove's patients, <laughs> and I've had depression for 28 years. I think I might have tried every drug in the PDR, um, so I'm finally doing TMS. I couldn't do it before because I was working, but now I'm not working. I'm off on a medical leave, which made me incredibly depressed. So Dr. Cosgrove prescribed this TMS, and I'm go- I've been about uh, 10 treatments now. Um, it's great. I mean, I have no side effects. When I'm doing it, I'm at the maximum dose now. When I'm doing it, it's like they put this cap on my head and then this machine cap on my head, and I hear that I have this really, you know, strong tapping over my right temple. At the same time, my tongue is a little numb on that side, my jaw closes, and my left hand, the fingers kind of flex. It's not painful. It's just a weird and interesting experience, and the tech was with me the first time I had those, you know, more side effects, the maximum side effects during the treatment. And, you know, I'm not afraid now. It's great. We just turn on some Seinfeld. I'm there for about 20 minutes. It's just wonderful. I'm just, I'm really hopeful that this will help. The downside is they told me it's 40% success and that kind of, well, you know, that's kind of disappointing, but you know, I'm optimistic. This is like my, you know, one of my new things and I'm really hoping it'll work. It's not drugs. So that's kind of different. Yeah. Hey, Martha, thanks so much for uh, sharing your experience. Kind of got to be fun to hear your doctor on the on the radio, too. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Siki, I wanted to ask you, you know, Martha was sort of like describing the experience of being, you know, a, of undergoing this treatment. And I know that there are other acute psychiatric treatments that have begun to gain, you know, a foothold, whether it's ketamine or MDMA or the return of electroconvulsive therapy. And what I'd love you to answer is how these acute treatments are changing the way that we think about that kind of mind-brain connection, because these are all kind of very uh, physical interventions into what might seem like a non-physical process. Yeah, so, so that's a good question. And it's something that people struggle with a lot is they, they think of some of this as a non-physical process as something other than uh, a bodily function. And the way I usually describe it is that, uh, you know, it, it, we, we, we often think of depression more recently as just another disease and, uh, and we should treat it like another disease. We, we treat all diseases from a multifaceted approach, uh, including lifestyle changes, physical therapies, medications, sometimes procedures. Uh, and the, it's a challenge to figure out the right thing for the right person. Uh, but now that we have more and more things coming out, so for example, Dr. Williams' great uh, uh, TMS approach is, is uh, really making a lot of waves in the field. But there's also been a lot of attention towards things like ketamine and uh, and psychedelics as, as treatments for depression. In the future, hopefully, we'll we'll have uh, intelligent ways of choosing the right thing for the right person, uh, rather than just uh, using a one size fits all approach, which is what psychiatry has been doing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in John from San Francisco into our conversation. Welcome, John. Hey, John, can you hear me? We may have lost John. Let's uh, bring in Elizabeth in Oakland. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi. Um, thank you for having me. I wanted to know if the treatment lasts um, for a certain period of time, and then if 
if it wanes over time, is there like a maintenance um, protocol, you know, to go back mm-hmm. like monthly for one treatment or to get like a, a shorter term treatment or do you just sort of start the whole cycle over again? That's great. Uh, let's first go to uh, Dr. Cosgrove and then uh, Dr. Williams. Yeah, that's a great question um, uh, by Elizabeth. Uh, so the standard protocol is uh, you do the, the 36 treatments and if it works, either a response or, or the depression is in remission, that's great. We found it's pretty durable. So uh, roughly 80% of folks who get that good response will still be doing better one year later. If someone had a good response to the treatment and starts to relapse into depression within that first year, the standard practice is to uh, offer a, a kind of booster series of 5, 10, or 15 treatments, uh, which will usually usually work and get that person out of the depression again. So we're not starting over from scratch. If it has been more than a year, uh, we usually offer, uh, and someone relapses into depression, we'll offer, why don't we do the whole thing over? It's been long enough time that let's treat this like a discrete episode and, and, and do another 36 treatments. And Dr. Williams, what are uh, what are you seeing with some of the this kind of leading edge of the research? Yeah, great question. So, um, just as Dr. Cosgrove said, that's you know that's the sort of approach we take at Stanford for conventional RTMS for the for these accelerated protocols. You know, we've been exploring ways of doing um, you know doing these sorts of maintenance um, approaches as well, right? So, being but the the problem with TMS for some folks is that this is quite a um, investment of time, right? If I work down, you know, if I work 20 miles or 30 miles from the, the nearest TMS uh, facility and I, and, and the, you know, we're working in bankers hours and they're working in bankers hours, right? It's very hard. You have to almost tell your boss what's going on with you to be able to leave work and, and you know, go do your six mm-hmm. weeks of TMS. The beauty of, of the accelerated protocol for outpatients is we've kind of learned and, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from patients who've, who've come through and told me this is, you know, with a week, which is what, you know, five days is what we're doing for the accelerated protocol. The, the patient can go on a, a vacation week and get treated and, and go back to work, um, you know, in many cases well. And then if you had accelerated maintenance protocols, you know, they could do it on a weekend day once a month or once every couple of weeks, right? And, and you avoid you avoid the scenario of having to negatively interact with your work or, or that sort of thing, you know? And so that's, that's kind of the beauty of rethinking the possibility of doing maintenance treatments um, in a more rapid way as well. Yeah. Thanks so much for that uh, question, Elizabeth. I want to bring in uh, quickly Bridget from Palo Alto, and then I'm going to piggyback on her, on her uh, question. Bridget, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I am a psychotherapist. I work in Palo Alto, and I've had a couple folks go through the TMS protocol. Um, I think it's incredible work. And one question I had is about anxiety, actually. I've noticed a couple folks have um, some relief from their depression, which is incredible, but be profoundly impacted by their anxiety, which comes up and is now all of a sudden hitting them in the face once they have that relief from depression. And I know a lot of SSRIs are treating both depression and anxiety, 
and I'm I'm trying to understand what what's going on with the brain that it, it feels like it doesn't do much of a dent for folks with anxiety, yeah. and then that becomes the new issue that we have to treat. That's a great yeah, a, question, Bridget. Yeah. Oh, go yeah, ahead. I'm, I'm happy to kind of so so the, it's just a, it's a brain target issue, Bridget, which you're bringing up, which is a great great question. The left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, um, you know, ends up being uh, quite different if you look at, at uh, it, you know, at, say, the, the target for depression versus the target for anxiety. And uh, Dr. Siddiqui actually has done a lot of work on this and be the person to kind of answer this question. Yeah, sure. Uh, Dr. Siddiqui, we, we have had a lot of listeners write in um, asking about OCD, panic disorders, drug addiction, Parkinson's, and chronic pain. Yeah, so that's exactly what we're working on right now. So the, uh, uh, as Dr. Williams mentioned, the, it's, it's a target issue. So when we treat a specific spot for depression, the, that's because we believe that specific spot is abnormal in depression. Uh, one of the things we're working on a lot now, and we've got a few things that we've published already, is trying to find the right spot for everything else. We've got a spot for anxiety. We've got a spot for PTSD, one for potentially bipolar disorder, possibly for addiction that's coming out soon. Uh, we've, uh, we actually published one recently for Parkinson's disease, which, which you mentioned. Uh, so, so the idea is that at, we're, uh, we're, we're working really hard to sort of map different parts of the brain to try to figure out what do we want to activate to treat different disorders. And uh, this was challenging until recently because as, uh, as one of the earlier callers pointed out, we were seeing about 40% response rates with TMS. So it's hard to know if our target is the thing that isn't right or if it's something else that's not working. But now with this newer protocol, now that we're seeing 80 or 90% remission rates, all of a sudden we can really test the targets really well. And so I, th- I think that uh, Dr. Williams' study is really just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, before too long, we'll have targets for OCD, for PTSD, for everything else your colleagues are asking about. Yeah. So uh, some more comments coming in from listeners. Um, Ken writes, several years ago, I had two 36-session TMS treatment. Each session was 20 minutes long. I didn't experience significant improvement from the first treatment, thus the second one was approved. Unfortunately, I still didn't see much, if any, improvement. Uh, would I perhaps see good results from this new method? A uh, couple more. Keep rolling here. Kathleen uh, writes, I went through TMS treatment last summer. I have had some changes in my depression, but not in suicidal ideation that still occurs frequently. For me, the treatment was very painful. I don't regret it despite the pain because I think it did help some, but uh, I wish I had been warned. And uh, final one here, uh, Lily writes, you've said how powerful the magnetic pulse is, though the brain is an extremely fragile organ. Have you studied the long-term effects of this treatment to determine potential harm, how do you know that the strength of the magnetic pulse you're using is not excessive? Uh, from that stack, Dr. Williams, um, what do you think? Let's make sure we talk uh, long-term effects such as we know them. Yeah, absolutely. So we have seen zero long-term um, negative effects. You know, um, we have um, we measured cognition in everyone, which is not something that is necessarily the you know, uh, ubiquitous in all the TMS trials, but we knew that this was going to come up as to whether or not such a such a larger dose would have a cognitive, uh, would have a negative cognitive effect. And actually, the opposite appears to be the case. In certain cognitive domains, there's an improvement in cognition. Um, we've never observed any seizures, and and the reason why we think that this is um, that this is uh, safe is because if you look at deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. 
they're giving 500,000 pulses per day, every day for decades uh, in Parkinson's patients who are quite cognitively vulnerable and they have no, um, they have no apparent stimulation side effects if the target is, um, is placed correctly. Um, and so, you know, we see a similar sort of thing here, right? And we're giving much fewer pulses than that. We're giving, you know, um, 18,000 pulses a day of, uh, of intermittent theta burst. And so that's uh, quite a bit less than what deep brain stimulation and is, is giving, and it, only for five days. And, um, you know, it looks, it looks safe. I mean, it was an open question uh, when we went into this as to whether or not giving that much was going to be safe or not. And that's why we took all these extra precautions to measure cognition. Um, but so far, the risk uh, profile looks, looks, looks good. Yeah. yeah. Let's bring in uh, Michael from Sunnyvale. Hello. Um, I went through a TMS session um, and treatment in the fall. Which, which definitely helped. I've, I've been depressed for 25 years, um, and it kind of got my, my head out of water and stuff um, between the TMS treatment and um, uh, some samples of a new drug called Trintelix, which um, my, uh, my doctor put me on. But the problem with Trintelix is that it's not covered by my insurance, and it's, you know, even with the discounts, it's, it's over $100 a month for treatment, which, uh, you know, I'm... I'm on a uh, retired. I'm on uh, Social Security and stuff. I just can't afford that. Um, so I'm interested in finding out, um, you know, what is the process <clears throat> for getting involved in some of these studies for uh, things such as the ketamine or the uh, uh, psilocybin or LSD yeah. or some of the protocols that are coming out that are experimental. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence that that the, the psychedelics will help with a lot of depression issues, but it's still restricted by the federal government. So you can't right. actually do real tests. Well, uh, thank you for that, Michael. And um, Dr. Cosgrove thought maybe you could answer two questions uh, really there. One is kind of what advice do you have for patients, you know, who might be quite close to getting TMS treatment about how to kind of calibrate their expectations? And then the second is um, how accessible are the kind of treatments that Michael was talking about, the ketamines and some of the psychedelics and MDMA and those kind of things. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the, the first question um, about calibrating expectations. That's a really important uh, conversation to have with people as they consider doing this. Um, you know, nothing will work. There's no treatment, I think, in the history of medicine that works 100% of the time on 100% of the people. So I, I think it is good to have realistic expectations about what it can do and yet be very optimistic because um you know uh we we have found i think consistently that 50 to 60 or 70 percent of our patients do get a good response and that's really hopeful and that's really wonderful and so i we we focus on that but also have a backup plan in place if if the tms doesn't do everything we want um so, so that's the conversation we have with people, and I think it's a a, a, a delicate balance. And and, uh, uh, but that's that's the way we approach it. I, I can't really address uh, the other questions about psychedelics and, and ketamine. Those I know are under investigational studies, and you know I think there's a lot of excitement about them for the future. But but it, it's not something that I that I deal with. 
Dr. Siddiqui, I know, what do you think about some of those other treatments and how they compare to the, you know, either the, the OG version of this uh, stimulation or uh, Dr. Williams' kind of uh, refined protocol? So some of these other treatments are, again, interesting and exciting. Uh, I think they're not uh, fundamentally different from what we've been doing for a long time. They're, they're an improvement over the drugs that we've had before. Uh, so we're hoping that we'll, again, like I said earlier, try to figure out the right patients for the right treatments. Uh, but, but I think uh, uh, we're, we're still sort of manipulating the chemicals in somebody's brain. And the, the, the thing that we as psychiatrists have found as sort of a limitation of that approach is that we just hit the whole brain with chemicals and, and it's, it works for a lot of people. And, and of course, that's what we prescribe for a lot of our patients. But we're, for a long time, we've been trying to be more precise. And so the, the idea with some of these newer treatments, so at least the brain circuit targeted treatments, is rather than hitting the whole brain, we can say, I want to hit a specific spot for a specific disorder. I mean, like Dr. Williams mentioned, we've got a target for depression now, we've got a target for anxiety now. We're working on identifying new targets. But, but they're, so, they're going to be fundamentally different things. The, one is an improvement over our existing psychiatry 2.0 model, like you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. And one is an entirely new psychiatry 3.0. A new paradigm. That's so great. Uh, last comment from Elizabeth. She writes, I was in the Stanford clinical study for TMS. It did help. On medication now, but I'm unable to access talk therapy. As many of you have written to us and called in to say, as Elizabeth writes, access is the ultimate barrier. We've been talking about promising new treatments for depression and mental illness with Nolan Williams, director of the Stanford Brain Stimulation Lab. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your new study, Dr. Williams. Thanks for having me. I've also been joined by Dr. Sean Siddiqui, instructor in psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School and neuropsychiatrist at the Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Thank you, Dr. Siddiqui. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thank you. And Dr. Cosgrove, psychiatrist, Kennedy Cosgrove at Kaiser Permanente. Thanks so much for joining us, Kennedy. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.